Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January 24th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all in. And here in about 20 minutes, we're going to be real excited to join uh, to have joining us um, David Shore, one of the absolute uh, best political data uh, analysts going. Um, he's been around quite some time because he got a start when he was still, I guess, essentially in high school um, in 2008, uh, working in some capacity with Obama uh, campaign. And he'll tell us more about that, but he really has put a lot of information out there, understands a lot of trends. Um, and so we're going to talk to David here about 20 minutes in, uh, but, you know, a few things have happened, um, some very celebratory and some a little sad. And, and since we're an Atlanta-based show or a Georgia-based show, uh, we're going to start off with something um, a little bit sad but but important not only to the world of sports but to the world of uh, politics and culture uh, here in um, Atlanta and Georgia, and that was the passing of home run king Hank Aaron. Um I'm sure most people are very familiar with Hank Aaron's um, baseball legacy, but there is a whole other parts to Hank Aaron's legacy in Atlanta as being a big figure in the political uh, world, doing fundraisers, uh, doing donations, endorsements. I mean, he endorsed all the way up to the uh, primary race in the Senate uh, campaign this time, um, you know, back in – I guess for the what ended up being the July primary or the June primary, I know they moved it. Um, he had endorsed in that race. His brother-in-law is Congressman David Scott. Uh, but then also there's a social legacy there because when the Braves, it was first sports team to move to Atlanta, um, he was the face of the franchise, but he was an African-American face in the first – Southern, you know, deep South-based uh, fr- uh, pro franchise at the major league level. Uh, then, um, you know, later in this time with Atlanta, and that just really, um, you know, made an impact on the city. He made it come from that point in the city. Worked in the Turner organization, the Braves organization, from then on, and was just such a huge figure um, for getting close to, I guess, fifty years. Um, in Atlanta life, and so um, his legacy will be always there, but but his life will be missed. Um, Tim, I guess you probably have followed the Braves longer than either of us. Tell us um, your thoughts on Hank Aaron. Well, uh, you know, you you made mention of the fact that that he faced a lot, uh, and, and he did when. When he came here in 1966, everybody knew that he was a great ball player. And uh, But he was a quiet sort of guy, and he had played in Milwaukee, which was kind of off the beaten path a little bit. Uh, but then all of a sudden, people started noticing because he was hitting a lot of home runs at a consistent level that he might have a chance to catch Babe Ruth. And that's where he began to face a lot. Um, he he came within one home run of tying the record on the last day of the 1973 season. So he spent a whole winter waiting to break the record in 74. And there were death threats. There was hate mail. There was vile phone calls. His... Children were basically prisoners in his home. Everywhere he went, he had to go with security. He had to sneak in and out of buildings. It, it, it had to be very traumatic um, 
for him to face that, and he did it with quiet dignity. Um, years later, he gave an interview that, you know, where he said a lot of things have, have happened in this country, but we have so far to go. There's not a whole lot that has changed. He said, in a, in a way, those that oppose President Obama, he said they used to wear white hoods, and now they wear starch shirts and, and ties. And, of course, here came all the virulent stuff again, and this was in 2014. The, the, um, but, but he was a vigorous defender of President Obama. And um, he always supported athletes making political statements. But he was a very iconic figure. He transcended baseball. He was bigger than the game, and um, he 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 uh, you know and it, and his wife stayed stayed politically active all these years. And it's uh, uh, you know rest in peace, Hammer. You were you were truly uh, one of the great ones. Yes. Now, Catherine, I know you may not have followed his baseball career as closely, but he had that other. You know, second life with um, his political involvement. Kind of give us your thoughts on Hank Aaron. Well, I um I, I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I always heard a lot of stories about him. A friend of mine used to go and watch the uh, Braves uh, practice. I guess at the old stadium, the old field, and one day he was just. <clears throat> sitting in his car watching the brave practice and he looked over and there was Hank Aaron just standing there uh, watching them practice. And so my friend went up to him and introduced himself and said he was, it was an honor to meet him and whatever. And Mr. Aaron just like sat there, they just, you know, sort of talked for a while about baseball and things. And he said it was just like a very ordinary interaction and I just remember thinking that was very kind and generous of Hank Aaron and then of course as you know as a follower and minor participant in democratic politics um, he was always you know donating and you know like you said making endorsements and supporting uh, candidates and of course his brother-in-law and I think he also supported his wife in her uh, more, I think she was more engaged, um, you know, on a ground level than he was. I I don't know this, but I, I get the feeling that she was more likely to actually attend things whereas it might've been difficult for him to do so. So, um, you know, we'll miss him. Um, what a great legacy of in sports and in um, civic life. Uh, I, it's a, it's sort of sad. It's it's sad, but what a great life he led. Even though he did have all these uh, all this conflict that came to him by no uh, not by anything he did. He was just a good baseball player, and people didn't like that, which is really sad. Yes, I mean, his legacy will, will be there anyway, and, of course, the Atlanta Braves are going to, um, I guess, still keep him such a part uh, of their history as, as they've done since he retired in the uh, 1970s. And then even downtown at, at where Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was, where he hit the home run, um, Georgia State is going to build a baseball stadium there, and I think the whole thing is going to have tons of, uh, of a Hank Aaron feel to it. And the, the old Turner Field had the old uh, Hank Aaron statue that they put originally outside of uh, Fulton County Stadium. I think the Braves just made new ones, and so they left it. And even though that's a football stadium now, um, Georgia State kept that, st- that statue there. And, and then the road beside it is called Hank Aaron Way, and it's still going to be called that even though that's where a football team now plays, not baseball, but that's because – you know, how big a deal Hank Aaron is. And so um, his legacy will be, you know, remembered a lot of ways there. Um, One quick question for Tim, and then we're going to segue to uh, just another colossal 
uh, piece of news worldwide. Um, but Tim, I understand over the past off season because a lot of the social justice uh, changes uh, and awareness that Major League Baseball is now going to count um, Negro League records. And Hank Aaron was yeah. one of those players that started in the Negro Leagues when he was rather young for the Indianapolis Clowns. And I really don't know if they were a major or a minor league Negro League team. My question is, if he hit, say, 50 home runs with the Indianapolis Clowns, if those get added to his totals, does he repass Barry Bonds? Well, you know, that's a good question. He didn't play with them long. Uh, before before the uh, uh, minor leagues grabbed him off. But, yes, they were a Negro League yeah. team. As a matter of fact, he was the last major player to be signed by the major leagues out of the Negro Leagues. Uh, because because you got you got to remember, he, he went to them in 1952, and by then the Negro Leagues was, was about a thing of the past. Um, but that you know that would be interesting to know. I I don't know if he was a prolific home run hitter at oh. that time. Yes. Uh, I mean you got to you got to think he was 17 years old when he left Mobile and and went to play with them. So. Yeah, and, and it may be that once Jackie Robinson integrated, that may be the point where they are going to stop using those records. Although just one player really didn't truly integrate it, you had to wait till there was a a much you know larger version of integration with more players. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I I couldn't have imagined um, three or four days ago this next story not being the lead. Um, but you know, Catherine, you always say well greetings from Atlanta. I thought she might have said greetings from Joe Biden's America. Uh, because just before noon <laughs> on Wednesday, um, Joe Biden took the oath of office. Kamala Harris took the oath of office. And um, earlier that morning, Donald Trump uh, flew for the last time on Air Force One uh, down to Mar-a-Lago. And we have had a transfer of power. And um, it, it's been a, um, a difference in the past several days, hasn't it, Catherine? It sure has. What a relief. And what a great day Wednesday was. It was uh, it was really moving watching all the um, festivities or however you want to say it. Um, the speeches, the music, the, you know, I always enjoy watching the interaction between things, you know, who's talking to who and how quickly did George Bush find Michelle Obama. <laughs> because <laughs> they seem to be quite good buddies and uh it was it was it was great and then to end the day with uh vice president kamala harris uh swearing in our two georgia senators and the new california senator was just sort of a cherry on top so yes and and since then as you said uh we've seen some great uh executive orders and uh you know, policy announcements that um, I think will make our country better and safer and healthier and um, all those all those important things. So, yes, it was a great day, a great week. Yes. Now, Tim, if, if we want to add in January 6th to the mix, we can't say this, but as far as just the 21st, Inauguration Day, it was a peaceful um or the 20th, I'm sorry, I'm one day behind myself. The 20th, it was a peaceful day that day in a transfer of power. Um, all those folks that had said they may come back, they <laughs> gave it second thoughts. I'm glad they did. Uh, thoughts? Well, if I'm going to apply a word to this particular inauguration, I mean, unique. It is a textbook word to apply. We were looking uh, at, you know, federal troops quartered in the Capitol. That hasn't happened since the Civil War. There were 25,000 of them in the Capitol uh, because January 6th, of course, had changed everything. Uh, other things that obviously were very different. 
Well, there was no crowd there. There couldn't be. We had social distancing and masks and uh, the Bernie meme stole <laughs> the show, as it <laughs> turned out. That mittens thing is going nutty. Uh, there was probably two to 3,000 people there, I guess. You know, Congress normally gets about 200,000 tickets to give out to constituents. Well, this year, the only tickets that the congressman got was for himself and one guest. Um, now, that meant there were more people watching it. Uh, there was like a 4% larger audience watching the major networks than there uh, was for Trump, like right at 40 million people. Which network was number one, guys? What's your guess? I'm going to say uh, CNN. Very good, very good. And who was at the bottom of the list of major networks? Fox. A good guess again. Uh, so even though some things stayed the same, some things certainly did change this this time, didn't it? Guys, and another thing, we saw the big-name celebrities that were absent from the previous inauguration. That was Lady Gaga, J-Lo, Garth Brooks slayed the place. Um, this was certainly a different type speech than, than Trump's American carnage speech, too, wasn't it? You know, it was more about unity. Um, and in the days after, little things like the press room opened up again. They just yeah. had the place down. And Dr. Fauci was out there with nobody standing over his shoulder, um, making sure he didn't uh, say the wrong thing or something. Uh, let me ask y'all a question, though. I don't think there's going to be a honeymoon period like there is for most presidents. What do y'all think? Mm, yes and no. I think we're so polarized that the bases are not going to give a honeymoon period. Um, you know, some of the Trump folks still have the Trump flags flying and the signs in the yard. But but I think for other folks, he's going to get a little more because he people know – you know, what he's walked into is just um, such a mess. I mean, I, I can't think of another crisis period in American politics in which we've switched um, leaders. Um, and so I, I think he's going to get a little benefit of the doubt. And I did see that uh, headline. He's planning to under-promise and over-deliver, and so that may help as well. Catherine, your thoughts? I think he's going to get a honeymoon uh, period from uh, from Congress, <clears throat> but maybe not from the people. Like I think we're going to be impatient because of COVID and um, jobs and the um, relief funding. But I think uh, Congress and the Senate are going to maybe give them a little leeway. You know, like the Republicans. And try to work with him in a way that maybe they would, but in, in in a little bit of a honeymoon way. That's sort of my sense of how mm. things are going. Tim, I, uh, I take it for your question. You don't think you'll get much. What do you think? Well, there's the specter of impeachment hanging over a lot of this. There's going to be some raw nerves. There's a growing group of Republicans who have come to the decision that, uh, yes, probably what Trump did was impeachable, but they're going to say that it's not constitutional because he's no longer the president, and why impeach someone who's uh, not president? And that's where I think they're going to oppose it, and they won't have the votes in the Senate to convict. Uh and, and I think there's going to be a lot of screaming about that. Uh, the stimulus thing, I think, is going to be very testy, and I think there is also growing Republican opposition to uh, the president's stimulus proposals. Uh, the economy is already that Catherine mentioned that the American people are going to be impatient. Well, you know, 
because of the economy and that the fact that, that we've had to face the brunt of the COVID stuff and people, it's, it's like they almost expect things to just change overnight when it's very obvious that they won't. So I just don't think there's going to be that lengthy period of goodwill, even a month that you would expect uh, from the, you know, a new administration or for a new administration, rather. Well, if he can even get just a few weeks, because in a few, there's a few weeks, two things will happen. One, now we're enjoying a 60-something degree day. It's actually pretty nice out here in Georgia, but the weather's going to warm up, and that means you're going to get through the traditional cold and flu season, um, which means that's going to – and more people can get outdoors, and that's going to help um, with COVID and COVID symptoms. Second, even though the um, vaccination process is going along at a snail's pace, um, it should speed up because of and if it speeds up, then you're going to have people then can you know re-enter the um, economy and re-enter possibly the workforce and what have you and can get out there and that is going to give a better sense of a good mood. But I want to transition over. We're so excited to welcome into the Kudzing Vine for the first time, Mr. David Shore. Welcome, David. Hey, pleasure to be here. Oh, great to have you. Well, David, um, I know a lot of people that really uh, follow political data and, and research may be familiar with your work, but just give our listeners that may not be a little bit about your bio and your experience in politics. Yeah, sure. I've uh, worked in Democratic politics for about eight years. I got my start working for the Obama campaign in 2012. I built their election forecasting models, you know, figuring out how close each state was going to be, how to, how much money to put in each place. And that's, the, you know, generally the kind of work I do, a lot of research on messaging, figuring out how to persuade people and, you know, what methods of getting votes actually work and which ones don't. Yes. Now, um, you're from Florida originally. You don't live there still. Um, but even though it kind of, I guess, makes more sense to go nationwide, I am fascinated by Florida. I find it the unsolvable puzzle to figure out what they're going to do next. And seemingly, it seems like a, a harder puzzle even for the, the Democrats and the Republicans at this point. Just kind of give me a, a sunshine state view of uh, Florida politics from a data perspective. Yeah, you know, what I think is really fascinating about Florida is that if you went to 20 years ago, basically in exactly 50-50 state, you know, separated by less than a couple hundred votes, but, you know, people really thought that, you know, Florida was like the future, that Democrats had a really bright future, and I think if you look at the last 20 years, you know, the population of Florida, or at least the number of voters, has almost doubled, you know, the non-white share of the electorate has almost doubled, and so you have an electorate that's gotten, you know, more diverse, and yet despite that, you know, uh, it's a state that's now a lot more Republican than it was 20 years ago. And so I think Florida is really interesting because it kind of highlights that a lot of a lot of the simplistic angles, you know, by which people look at politics uh, aren't always true. You know, things are a little more complicated than they look. Okay. If somebody said, here's $25 million to try to flip Florida for the Democrats – where do you spend the lion's share, or how do you split up the money uh, in different parts of the state to try to, um, you know, switch that state back where it was really like eight years ago? You know, I, I, I think it's – I'm always a little cross-pressured. You know, it's my job as a political consultant to tell people this is how much you spend on mail, this is how much you spend on TV. But I think we have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, Michael Bloomberg just spent – $100 million, you know, on uh, TV ads in Florida, and it's not super clear what that did. And, you know, what I'm, and I'm not, you know, what I'm trying to say is just that the nature of politics has really changed a lot, you know, in the last 20 years. You know, it used to be that uh, you could have, recruit the right candidates, build these regional brands, and I think that now we have this world where everything is really just kind of determined by the top of the ticket, and more importantly than the top of the ticket, really determined by these broad structural forces. You know, like one example about Florida, something that's made Florida much harder, is that when you go back to year 2000, you know, people don't realize this, but, you know, Gore actually did slightly better with people over, over the age of 75 
than he did with people under the age of 30. And since then, you know, national Democrats uh, have seen their coalition completely change. Uh, we've got, uh, old, you know, old, older voters have gotten a lot more conservative. Younger voters have gotten a lot more liberal. And that's not a trade that works in a place like Florida, where, you know, we not, we're not just one of the oldest states in the country, but, you know, we also just see this constant inflow of retirees and, you know, particularly white non-college educated retirees who come in from the Midwest. You know, we estimated, you know, we estimated just a couple months ago that just the number, just retirees moving into Florida alone, or at least, you know, inflow from the rest of the country made Florida about 1% more Republican than it would have been in, uh, in 2016. So I think, you know, just to, I know that wasn't an answer to your question, but to answer your question, I think that we really like to focus on all of these interventions, like, you know, buying ads on, you know, buying Spanish language media or knocking on doors, but politics is about branding. And, you know, if we're, if we want to win in Florida, we have to appeal to, uh, the coalition that exists in Florida. That involves, you know, having a brand that isn't actively hostile to folks who are older, who, you know, frankly, are a big part of the, you know, big part of the electorate here. But also the thing I'd say is that really a lot of this stuff starts with the national brand. You know, the correlation, and you can just, you could see this on a state ledge level, you know, there used to be a lot of, you know, uh, rural Democrats in, uh, in northern Florida and the state ledge level, and they're all gone. Uh, and so, you know, we're kind of victims to what, hap- what, what decisions the national party makes and what decisions the national media makes in a way that, you know, um, can be frustrating. But it just means that, like, what your public-facing communication is is super important. Yes. Well, you actually made an interesting point there uh, that is important to Florida. A lot of times when we think of a state growing, it's people that are younger that, you know, go to a college or when they finish college, they get a job or, or something like that. Um, Florida's a state that pumps in a lot of 58, 68-year-olds that might bring their Republican politics elsewhere. So I think that's a, a very good, good point. Um, one final sort of Florida-related question. Okay, you're you're the DNC. Uh, Jamie Harrison's asking you which one of the big three Republican targets, Texas, Florida, or Ohio. Um, I believe those are the three states that have the most electoral votes for the Republicans this last time. We're going to try to pick off one of those. We're going to add them to Arizona and Georgia. Which one would you advise them might be the easiest to flip? Florida, you know, without a doubt. I mean, I just think if, even if you just look by margins, you know, Florida, even though Florida was one of the only states in the country that got more Republican between 2016 and 2020, uh, there are a lot of bright spots. I mean, one, it was the closest of any of those three states, so that's what makes it a little bit of an easy bet. So I think there are, even though predictions about the future are hard, I think there are some structural reasons, you know, to be bullish about Florida uh, in terms of it improving from where things are right now. You know, one of the big reasons why we did, you know, so poorly in Florida uh, is that, you know, the, and this, this isn't a Florida-specific problem, though it was much worse in Florida, I think, than the rest of the country, you know, an absolute cratering in support among Hispanic voters. You know, I've done some precinct-level analysis that indicates that, you know, something like we lost something like 14% of the Hispanic vote, you know, between 2016 and 2020 presidentially, which is wild. You know, I, I think it's one of the largest demographic shifts that's probably happened in, Democrat, in America, American politics in the last 30 years. But there are a lot of, there are some reasons to think that will revert. You know, it's, it's still a little bit unclear why that shift happened. But one of, the, one of the more plausible explanations is just that it does seem like presidents who are incumbents tend to do better uh, among Hispanic voters. You know, both George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton in 1996, all saw substantial increases in support among Hispanic voters, both Florida, in Florida and elsewhere. And, you know, we're going to presume, I mean, it's still a little bit unclear. We don't know who, whether or not uh, Joe Biden will be the nominee in 2024, but there definitely won't be an, incum- uh, an incumbent Republican president. And so, you know, that by itself, Florida is one of the most Hispanic states in the country, and it has one of the highest uh, Hispanic turnout rates in the country. So that has a big, a big effect. And the other piece is that, you know, we've seen at this point, you know, since 2000, age polarization, you know, us doing better among uh, young people and worse among older people. That trend has continued for, tr- for 20 years now. Uh, in the same way, we've been doing better with uh, college-educated voters and worse with, you know, less-educated voters. But I think that now that Trump is not on the ticket, 
Uh, there's a lot of reasons to think that that should reverse, um, which demographically would have a larger impact in Florida than you know any of those other states. All right, excellent analysis, very intriguing food for thought. I'm going to pass this over to Tim Shifflett, who will pass it to Catherine Smith. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Short. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, since you're a data guy, let's start with the $64,000 question. What is wrong now with political polling, and going forward, can we trust it? That's a great question. So, you know, I think there's uh, before, I think that I do want to say the polling this year was bad. The polling in 2016 was bad. And I think actually people who follow Florida politics will also know that the polling in 2018 was bad, too. People nationally didn't realize it because the Democrats won. But, you know, all of us were not expecting DeSantis, and here he is. So I think we know the polls have actually been bad for a long time. But there's a different point. You know, that I want to make before I answer that, which is that elections are just a lot closer than they used to be. If you look at the closest presidential elections that have ever happened in the history of American politics, something like six of the eight closest have been in the last 20, you know, in the last 30 years. Uh, and so that means that it matters a lot more. If it's 1984 or, 19, or even 1988, it really doesn't matter whether the polls are off by two or 3%. You can still call the winner. But now that things are very close, uh, what normally what would be a normal polling error uh, suddenly uh, you know can change the outcome uh, and change the winner. So, but just to talk a little bit about why you know I think the polls were wrong in 2016, uh, and it's just relevant because I think we've seen really the same error again and again and again. You know, not just underestimating the Democratic share of the uh, overestimating the Democratic share of the vote, but also doing it in the same places. Uh, I just want to go back, you know, to 2016. Uh, which was, you know, when we had this big miss that surprised the world. And, you know, after the, you know, I, just to, you know, full disclosure, I, I, I'm a pollster. My polls were wrong in 2016. And we really spent a lot of time after the election really trying to understand why. And a lot of, there, you know, first I'll just, you know, talk about what it wasn't. A lot of people have this idea that Donald Trump really inspired a lot of voters uh, to turn out to vote. You know, he really rallied his base and brought all of these people out of the woodwork and, you know, something that I think a lot of people who follow politics don't realize is who votes and who doesn't vote is a matter of public record, particularly in Florida. If anyone wants to, you know, send an email to the Secretary of State, you can get the Florida voter file for just $5. I've done that. I recommend anyone else here do that. And, you know, what we could see is that the changes from 2012 to 2016 weren't really changes in turnout. They were actually people changing their mind, that there were really legitimately a bunch of working class white voters who changed their votes from Obama to Trump. You know, we estimate that something like 10%, you know, there was a 10% decline uh, in Democratic support among working class white voters. And I believe it was a pretty similar number in Florida as well. And so the question is, wh why, did, why didn't the polls see that coming? And I think it gets down to this concept of social trust. Uh, and this gets a little bit academic, but you know, the way that academics like to measure this is just a simple question, which is asking people, do you think that people can generally be trusted, or do you think that people should keep to themselves? And, you know, first, just socially, uh, social trust, uh, the percentage of people who say that people can be trusted has declined by something like 20 to 30 percent, you know, since, since the government started asking this question, you know, in the, in the 1970s, which is very concerning, but, you know, uh, outside of my scope of uh, expertise, you know, the reason why it matters, though, is that people who, you know, trust the people around them are a lot more likely to answer surveys than people who don't. And this used to not matter very much. It used to be that people who trust their neighbors and people who don't trust their neighbors basically voted the same way. But Donald Trump really changed that fact. You know, he really reoriented politics. You could see 2012 as a question of, should we, you know, should we have universal health care and should we not? And Donald Trump really changed American politics to be a question of, do you trust institutions? Do you trust society? Um, in a way that hadn't been done before. And so, you know, when you go back and look at the polling, among people who say that people can be trusted, those people swung toward Democrats by something like 5 or 6%. And that, you know, the public polls that we saw reflected, you know, reflected that reality. But among, you know, uh, voters who didn't trust their neighbors, they swung against Trump by 
you know, they swung against Democrats by something like six or seven percent. And so there were just kind of two parallel realities, and we were only surveying one of them. And, you know, the problem, mm. public pollsters haven't changed their methods to incorporate this bias because there isn't really an easy way for, for them to do so. And that's why we really keep seeing these same errors again and again and again. And just the last thing I'll say is that unless pollsters make, you know, really fundamental changes to how they do their stuff, there's no reason not to assume that this is going to keep happening, that this isn't going to keep happening. Okay. Now, well, you know, the, the polls were, were also showing, uh, as we all know, that Democrats were going to pick up probably 10 to 15 seats in the U.S. House uh, last year. Well, basically the exact, even though the top of the ticket for the Republicans lost the election. So what went wrong in congressional races for Democrats in 2020? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing is to just go back to this general lack of ticket splitting or decline in ticket splitting. If you look uh-huh. district by district, if you look district by district, I think, you know, uh, Democrats had something like 223 seats in the House and Joe Biden won about 223 seats in the House. And so then the question is, well, why is it why is it that Joe Biden gets 52.3% of the vote, why, why do we only have a, five, a four or five seat majority? And I think the answer there is that the maps that we're working under are very biased. You know, the reality is that we, all, most of these, in, you know, in 2012, Barack Obama, you know, got uh, 52% of the vote. And I think House Democrats got something like 51.5% of the vote. And yet Republicans kept the House. And the reason for that is that, these maps were drawn by Republican state legislators and are incredibly biased. And, you know, Florida is one of the best examples of that. You know, we passed this supposedly nonpartisan gerrymandering ballot measure, and it was, you know, basically completely gutted. Uh, and that's, that's really the, the core of the issue is that we now live in a politics where, you know, the bo- there isn't really very much ticket splitting. Uh, how, how, if you, the president, how, you know, this district votes on a presidential level really tells you a lot, and it's very, very hard to overcome. And that's really scary because the median House seat is about three points more Republican than the country overall. Mm-hmm. And so that means that, you know, we really have to get like 51 or 52 percent of the vote in order to keep the House. And that's I mean, I think that's that's not fair. Um, it's very easy to imagine a world uh, in 2022 where Democrats get 50.5 percent of, of the of the vote. And then lose the lose the House of Representatives, uh, which would be very anti-democratic and bad. Wow. One one more question, and then I'm going to pass it over to uh, Catherine for some more questions. But uh, when you observe your data now, do you find that there is still a significant group of persuadable swing voters, or are swing voters? disappearing in this country? Well, I I think that there clearly are still swing voters. You know, you can, like every, you know, uh, most change that happens from election to election, you know, people like to think it's turnout, but, you know, about 80% of the change that happened from 2012 to 2016 or from 2016 to 2018 or 2016 to 2020 was people changing their mind. But it is true that, you know, there are a smaller and smaller share of the electorate. And that's why, you know, our election results don't swing very much anymore. They used to swing a lot. You know, we used to have Ronald Reagan winning 49 states, uh, followed by, you know, Bill Clinton winning in Montana and Mississippi. And that just doesn't happen anymore. If you look at the last couple of elections in, the, in terms of two-party vote, you know, Barack Obama got 52 percent, Hillary Clinton got 51.1 percent, and Joe Biden got 52.3 percent. It's all in a very narrow range. Uh, it's just that, you know, our country is very evenly divided, you know, in these kind of biased institutions. And so this very small group of swing voters, honestly, you know, it's probably on the order of like five or six percent of the country decide what happens. But that number used to be a lot higher. Mm. Uh, thank you for that. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hi, David. Thanks so much for being on the show with us tonight. We really appreciate your insight. Uh, I want to go back to uh, polling for a second. So if we look at polling, as, as you, you know, sort of 
explained. Um, it's not really all that reliable, uh, as we've seen. But we also now sort of understand why, according to what you've um, explained. So how do we, I mean, do we just ignore it? Or do we try to, uh, when analyzing it, try to take what you've explained to us into account and sort of, you know, at the risk of using a not very good word, um, jerry-rig it so that we can say, well, this is what the polling says, but we know blah, 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 so really it means this. Or And and so how do we move forward uh, with or without uh, the polling that we've all become so um, accustomed to and reliant on in our uh, political gaming, I guess? Yeah, you know, I I think the I think the easiest answer uh is that any pollster that doesn't have a real story um for why they got things wrong in, you know, 2020 and 2018, 2016 and that doesn't have like serious methodological changes uh proposed, we should just assume that they're going to be roughly as wrong as they were last time. Uh and so yeah, normally normally this isn't something, you know, that I would say, but I think if we if we see these uh, pollsters using basically the same techniques as they did before, then yeah, we should subtract three points off of the off of the results uh, and be very skeptical. <laughs> no, really, we should be really skeptical of good news. Um, that said, you know, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of firms that are you know uh, constantly innovating, and you know we'll have to keep an eye on all of these you know special elections that are happening. But that's that's really my default posture is that unless something really changes, we should just kind of assume that this is the new norm and uh, that polling isn't going to be very reliable. And I think the other thing I'd say is that, you know, big polling misses aren't uncommon. You know, I think that we were really spoiled, you know, in 2008 and in 2012, those were, and and also 2010, that was just a really good three cycles for polling. And I think that we just kind of forgot how bad, you know, polling, uh, polling can be. And so I just I think what that means is that it's just really important to understand how much uncertainty there is in these things. Uh, and also, like if you're if you're polling at 40 48 percent, you should just work just as hard because you know the reality you shouldn't despair because the reality is that yeah sometimes polls are you know sometimes polls are wrong and we don't actually have that much knowledge as much knowledge as we thought we did. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's um, I think that's been sort of the on the ground. Um, attitude like okay whatever we're we're supposedly ahead but we're just going to keep working just you know keep at it because we can't rest on our laurels that we can't trust um i i just want i want to wondered if you had followed any very closely the um runoff election in georgia and it, if so did you have any thoughts about the messaging uh the sort of difference in messaging from the Republicans and the Democrats in that runoff. Were you, did you see any of those ads or, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Pay I pay um, any attention to that. Yeah. I full disclosure, you, you know, I was involved. I, I was, I was, uh, I was professionally involved on the, uh, independent expect- expenditure side, uh, in the Georgia races. I'm obviously very happy with the results. Um, but yeah, I think Democrats, you know, have a lot, a lot to be proud of and how they conducted, you know, that race, uh, something that, I really like to say uh, about uh, American American politics is I think a really underrated rule is to talk about popular things and not talk about unpopular things. You know, when you look at just generally across a lot of the experiments that we've done, uh, messaging guidance is for how to win um, is really clear. Like the median voter, you know, uh, really agrees with us on economic policies. And, you know, when you get to social policies, it's a little more controversial. But, like, the playbook to win is talk as much as you can about economic issues that people care about and try to keep people from talking about things that are more controversial. And I think if you look at, like, what Warnock did and, you know, also Ossoff, they really did everything they can to keep the conversation on checks, on health care, on income inequality, and really avoided – 
getting baited on like a lot of these bait, uh, a lot of these red meat, you know, uh, a lot of these cultural issues, you know, for example, you know, Warnock was very forceful that he doesn't support defunding the police. You know, that was controversial in some activist circles, but I think it really did play a role in neutralizing the issue. And, you know, basically if you look at nearly all of their ads and all of their attacks, they really focus on economic issues um, in a way that, you know, I don't think was, you know, isn't always done. Oh, I, I said that um, following the win that, um, you know, they, for years in democratic politics in Georgia, we've said, you know, don't talk about health care because it's too complicated and people don't understand it. Don't talk about um, justice and, you know, social justice and um, justice reform because, you know, nobody wants to hear about that. But this time we did talk about those things. We talked a little bit even about abortion and we won. And I, I, I felt uh, quite, um, what's the word? Uh, vindicated. Happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, vindicated. Yes. Um, because we did talk about those things in a very authentic and honest way. And uh, I think the voters appreciated that. And we can talk about, complex issues in more in in simple ways that um that convey um good change and uh so i i thought i agree i think that the messaging they used was good and then i thought that the messaging used on the other side was so negative that i think that really hurt them would you agree with that yeah, no, I, I I think that's I think that's right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's crazy just how much money uh, was spent on that race. Oh, but something that I we know. saw really, con- you know, we we tested a lot of ads and we really consistently saw that you know Democratic ads were more effective than Republican ones, uh, than the Republican ones that they put out. And uh, you know, I, I think some of it has to just do with the environment. You know, I, I think that people are a lot more primed to want to hear about these things in a, in a recession uh, than, you know, maybe they would be if things were different. Uh, but I, I, I'm very happy with how the race turned out and obviously very happy with the result. It was a lot of money. We talked about that <laughs> on the show. Yeah. The most, yeah, the most money that's ever been, ever been spent. Uh, but, you know, just to go back to Georgia a little bit uh, and, and on a slightly different topic, you know, I do think if you really look at the results, it's really, it's kind of clear. I don't think that, you know, this was true in the general, but when you look at 2021, you know, one of the big reasons why we won uh, was the black turnout or the black share of the electorate clearly went up between 2020 and 2021. And it's hard to know how much of that is attributable, maybe to Republicans staying home. It'll take a little bit of time to find out. But I think that it does, it does raise a lot of questions. Uh, you know, I think that in democratic politics, I think that there's a not often spoken, you know, thought that we should avoid, you know, running black candidates. And I think it's really notable to me that, you know, when you look at the messaging way forward, you know, Warnock did better than Ossoff did. And actually, the whiter a district was, the more, the greater the difference between Warnock and Ossoff. And so I think that that really points to a formula of, you know, having uh, openly religious African-American candidates. And I think that shows up in the House, too. You know, Lucy McBath, for example, uh, was, I think, I think literally the sixth highest performing Democrat, House Democrat of uh, any of the, you know, 200-something Democratic incumbents. And so I think that says very, something very interesting about, you know, how we normally think about candidate quality and, you know, hints at, you know, future, future strategies going forward. And also, you know, um, says something about the importance of, uh, of, you know, talking about faith and uh, seeming a little, a little more, a little more normal. Yeah, hmm. I agree with you. And, and I hope that we learn something from all that. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to David, because I think he has some more questions. Well, I just had Thanks one so quick much. follow-up on Georgia. And we kind of know, I think we've, you know, hear what you had to say and other folks about what happened this time. But I'm interested in what's going to happen in the next few cycles. And I, I use two other southern states. Virginia, um, it switched to Democratic in 2008, and it's just taken a, a pretty straight trajectory to becoming more and more Democratic. 
North Carolina flipped in 2008 for President Obama, and then it flipped back. And it seems to just, you know, Roy Cooper will win the governor's race, but we won't win the Senate race. Uh, we didn't win it in 2012. We didn't win it in 2016 in the presidential level or this time. Do you think Georgia is going to have a uh, progression more like Virginia or more like North Carolina or maybe just something else entirely? Yeah, I mean, it's a great it's a great question. Uh, I, I think a lot of this, there's a couple of different trends going on, but you know, when you, I, I guess it's just important to, to talk about why Georgia became so much more blue between 2016 and, uh, and 2020. You know, a lot of people, you know, like to claim that it's, you know, because of demographic change, but, you know, Georgia has been, you know, getting uh, less, you know, more diverse really for the last uh, at least 40 years, honestly, probably before that. Um, and that's, uh, and still, you know, really wasn't trending leftward. The big change, if you really look at the precinct data or even some of the individual level election uh, vote history data, really shows that it was because of this, these massive trends in the suburbs. If you kind of decompose what happened between 2016 and 2020, you see that non-college educated whites were basically stayed the same, you know, basically close to zero uh, change. Uh, Hispanic voters dropped probably by something like eight or nine percent. It's a little hard to know, but around that, the African American support among African Americans declined by something like two percent. But then, if you look at college-educated white people who, you know, generally, you know, live in uh, are high, the most uh, most concentrated and you know affluent suburbs of places like Atlanta, you know, we increased by seven percent, uh, which is wild, somewhere between six or seven, and uh, that's. That's a crazy number. And if you look at Georgia specifically, even though, you know, the black share of the electorate was slightly lower, you know, than it was in 2016, and even though we did somewhat worse with black voters, and you can kind of see that if you look at the county returns, uh, if Georgia still swung way to the left, you know, basically because you had a lot of these highly affluent um, suburbs uh, that have a lot of voters, you know, uh, that uh, these are places that went where Obama got 30, 35% of the vote that switched to being you know, in the 60s or even, even I think, in one case, the 70s. And so, you know, that's what drove Georgia. And the reason that didn't carry North Carolina over the finish line is that North Carolina just is a much less urban place than Georgia, has a lot more rural and, uh, uh, you know, as a share of the state. And it didn't happen in Florida because, you know, we have such a large non-white population, kind of ironic in some ways. That's what kept Florida from moving in our direction and made it go in the other. And so the future of Georgia really is a question of what happens to these like highly affluent voters who enthusiastically voted for Romney, uh, but then also, you know, switched over to vote against Trump. And that's a big open question. Um, you know, it's really possible that this, they really, I mean, they, they clearly switched their vote because of Trump and who he was like, as a person. Uh, but will they stay Democrats? Will they continue to trend toward Democrats is like, you know, the big open question. And if that the answer to that is really going to depend on what, probably what Trump's role in the Republican Party is going to be in the next four years. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure if Trump does either. Yes, well, that's a whole other show, the future of the Republican Party. Uh, maybe you can come back sometime in the future and discuss that with us. Um, but until then, the final thing I want to let you do is if people uh, like what they've heard, and I don't see how they couldn't, how could they either follow you on social media or read other writings or see polls you release or anything out there? Yeah, I'm uh, easy, easy to get in touch with. Uh, David Shore uh, on Twitter, uh, David Shore, spelled S-H-O-R. Uh, my DMs are open, and I'm always happy to chat with folks. Really flattered to, that you all invited me up here. That oh, was excellent. Thank you, sir. Thank right. you, sir. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. David Shore, uh, like I said, political analyst, uh, formerly of Florida, but now I believe in the D.C. area, um, and just really a, a knowledgeable person all across the country and different states. Um, well, guys, we got about you know six minutes, and we still are kind of discussing the inauguration and the early stages of the Joe Biden administration and the other topic we had planned. He's consumed a lot of our time, and, and we'll get to him because I don't think he's going away. Um, so let's kind of cover this inauguration uh, properly and, and the early stages. And, um, you know, I had said earlier that, you know, Joe Biden's going to 
under-promise and over-deliver is a little bit of the plan. Also, kind of make things more boring. But another thing that kind of struck me was that, um, you know, when Donald Trump makes the news, a lot of times it's he claims, he tweets, he says, he proclaims. With Joe Biden, he did things. He took actions um, that were positive, um, like going in the Paris Agreement and, um, you know, Putting together a mask mandate, which uh, the medical professionals have been wanting for so long, uh, canceling the XL pipeline, and just doing things and not making a big show about them, uh, 17 different things. They're uh, ending the Muslim ban. And would think that when Donald Trump did a lot of these things originally, like leaving the Paris uh, Agreement, like uh, installing the Muslim ban, it got a lot of negative, negative attention. People were outraged. But then when Joe Biden, un, you know, changed these things back, either you know took it away or made it happen again, and it depends on which ones we're talking about, there wasn't the same level of outrage from the other side. That tells me that um, what Donald Trump did was obviously far more controversial than you know the other way of doing it. Uh, and that seems like a good sign for where the Biden administration's going. Tim, with these 17 uh, actions taken in the first day, um, what were kind of your thoughts that there wasn't as much controversy as some might have felt? I, I think people are exhausted. I thought that for some time. I think people you, – you mentioned the word boring. You know what? That's 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 – that's a welcome word right now to most people. I think people want boring. I don't think they want to see a president out there just doing off-the-wall stuff. I think people want to perceive that the country is somehow trying to return to a sense of normalcy. I think the word normal is another thing that people yearn for now. And I think what they're seeing in the early days are, 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 are what a normal administration does. I mentioned the press room opening, Dr. Fauci out there leading the uh, experts in talking about his subject, uh, the, the president signing these executive orders without a great deal of fanfare and bringing things back toward the middle of the spectrum in this country, talking with a calm and measured voice, and just, like you said, doing things. I think people want to see that. That's why I don't think you've had the, you know, explosion of outrage from the other side. What do you think, Catherine? I absolutely agree with that. I think um, we want our government to be working. I think we like seeing the president behind the desk with his mask on, signing things with people around him, getting work done. Uh, I think the same is true of Congress and the Senate. I think we want – that's what we want. I, Amy Klobuchar has been on – you know, she's been on The View, and she's still been around. She's on uh, the press shows this morning. And she said something interesting, I thought. She said, you know, we have uh, families, you know, mothers and fathers who are, you know, balancing a laptop in one hand and a, teaching a child in the other. And uh, yeah. surely we can do that, too, uh, yeah. she was saying about the Senate and the government. And I think that's a really good point. Like, let's all get to work. There's a lot of work to do. And uh, I think we've you know, American people have been working really hard, uh, especially during this COVID. So I think I think that's what people want. They want to see government working for them because that's what they're supposed to be doing. So I agree. I think it's nice to see a boring guy sitting at his desk doing his work. Like David, what do you think, buddy? Yeah, David, what do you think? Is Joe Biden? Exactly the type of person we need in the Oval Office at this particular time. Well, I think a lot of times when people change leaders, they ask the question, "What do I want that I'm not getting?" And uh -huh. I think you know the calm, just rational, 
you know, you know, not, you know, grandstanding. That's what a lot of people wanted. Now there were people that, that they, you know, the cult of Trump, they, they loved all that. But most people, even some of the people that may have mildly supported some of his policies, they didn't like all that. And and Joe Biden was definitely not that. And that's why I think voters in particular like states like South Carolina, that they kinda had an innate sense that the way to beat uh Donald Trump was to, to find that. And and given how close the election was in certain metrics, um, the raw vote total it wasn't that close, but when you look at certain states that uh, figured in the Electoral College, it wasn't like I get the sense that we could have elected just anybody. We couldn't have beaten Donald Trump with just anyone. There may have been other people besides Joe Biden, but it wasn't a long, long list. It wasn't that list of 20-some-odd people that ran. Um, and so, therefore, uh, you know, it did look like the formula. And so we'll see early on, you know, how it goes. And um, and we're going to see how they have to balance other things, like the coming impeachment. We really don't have time to get into that tonight, but since the trial's not going to be immediate, we can save that till another week. Um, but want to again thank David Shore for coming on the show, and until next week, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom?